Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today, we're discussing the third and final season of Star Trek Picard. Annika, it was bad. <laughs> I mean, there were bits that I enjoyed, and there were bits where I got a lot of joy knowing that they made you happy, but I don't know that this was a good season of television and honestly i feel like i shot myself in the foot here because it was obviously great for my mental health to wait until the end and then binge it all at once but also i didn't have the shared experience of speculating and being excited as a community that's true that's true and that's part of the fun yeah yeah although and... mm. i hate most fan theories so oh yeah Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's part of the fun as long as you're in a little insular group of people <laughs> that you trust. I just felt like I couldn't appreciate the stuff with Vadik and the Changelings and her completely legitimate gripe against the Federation because I knew it was all going to be put aside in favour of some Borg nonsense. That's fair. It was hard to sit in the moment with that. For me, I was always expecting it to be put aside for some boring mm. nonsense from literally episode two. Yes. I was convinced the Borg were showing up and that Vatic was a what's red herring distraction. Mm. <laughs> Therefore, I felt good about it when it happened because <laughs> I, I was like, the signs are all there, everybody. You just aren't attuned to the Borg the way I am. <laughs> I feel like this was a season which was thematically really in tune with your interests in terms of legacy and family and broken people finding each other. It's just that it was really not executed as well as you would have done. Like, I feel like <laughs> Terry Metalis is Mira Annika. Yes, I appreciate that you think I would do better. I would like to thank you for, for that <laughs> vote of confidence. I think if nothing else, if you had somehow been running this season, you would have found a more graceful way to blend the legacy characters with the actual Star Trek Picard cast. Yes. Without sort of discarding everything that made season one good. I can insert Elnor into every episode mm. in a cohesive way. Soji is a little harder solely because they screwed her up in season two. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure I could still do it. And it just doesn't seem like it was necessary. It feels like season two was where the big misstep happened in, in terms of sidelining Soji and... And Elnor. And Elnor, yes. And they could have told the story about Picard's childhood and his acceptance of his grief and guilt without throwing all the other characters under the bus. Agnes and Rios could have made a more graceful exit. We could have gone forward preparing for season three to be the culmination of season one and two and not a repudiation of them. Yes. I recently rewatched a lot of season two for my vid and... A lot of it was kind of painful. Mm -hmm. Not even the parts that I knew were going to be painful. It was, 
it was just the the general i mean i i'd i'd not forgotten but it's i'd sort of gotten past the whole talon thing <laughs> and then i was like oh god talon i agree that season two is where the picard characters were let down yeah it was not actually season three that was when they were discarded but... yes and can i just say i said last year that gates mcfadden could play talon and nothing would change and i stand by mm-hmm. that mm-hmm Yes, I agree. Mm. It w- and it would have actually been like build up. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. would have there would have been more to it. But um. let's not rehash season two because that's <laughs> definitely my least favorite season of Star Trek: Picard, and also almost all of New Trek. But Discovery season two is still not there is still still the bottom of the barrel for me. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I think season three was overall more competent. It had better pacing and a sense of movement that the other seasons have lacked. And yes. the dialogue Precisely. was often very bad, but in a way that I no. didn't hate. <laughs> okay, so it was Star Wars dialogue. Yes. Which means it was terrible and people don't speak like that but also imminently quotable and kind of amazing and great and feel good vibes it also felt like they were trying to mash up the more formalistic style of the next generation with the realistic contemporary style of new star trek and the result is always going to be bad and that's fine it's just i mean i kind of love it when i say it's star wars dialogue that's a compliment (laughs) it it means that it's bad Mm. but also great if the dialogue was the worst thing about this season this would be a much shorter and more positive episode so let's start with the next generation cast next generation season eight (laughs) i think this was an amazing season for beverly i have in the past said that as an actress gates mcfadden is a great choreographer and i completely take that back she did overt work and subtle work with her face which has also had some work done and she just did an amazing job and I think it turns out she has always been capable of this level of work and it was simply never given to her. Yes she was given the opportunity yeah to actually act. Yes yes turns out she's good at it who knew. (laughs) And I wouldn't have picked her as an actress who could rise above poor writing, but she delivered some of that clunky dialogue with absolute, like, she saved it. Well, I think that she was fully committed. I will say all of them. Mm. The entire Next Generation cast was fully committed to this story Mm. and this dialogue and everything that they were doing. To a person, I was amazed by the performances. That doesn't mean that they were like Oscar winning performances, <laughs> but I compared to, I've also been watching Next Generation for yes. hitting reasons, and there's a lot of growth there. These are people who are very comfortable with the characters yeah. and who it felt like they were doing a tribute through their performance like they were giving it their all yeah because they were elevating it for themselves like mm. gates we've had was amazing jonathan frakes was amazing 
LeVar Burton and Michael Dorn got to do new things. I mean, Beverly did is new too, but like the difference in Picard Jordy and Next Generation Jordy mm-hmm. is significant. And and he is much improved as a character and LeVar Burton was so like he's always been the the dad and and the sweet guy and like the overworked <laughs> engineer but he had a gravitas I guess yeah. it, it just really came through well and I loved I don't love Worf <laughs> like I think that he was overwrought on Next Generation mm-hmm. and kind of a jerk on Team Space Nine but this Worf was just a totally different character archetype and I just wanted <laughs> him to hug me too mm. and I was just really happy. I so, do love Worf. I love Next Generation Worf and I kind of hate Deep Space Nine Worf and I really loved Picard Worf. I think he has absolutely earned the peace of mind that he enjoys now. I was very distracted by how Michael Dorn wasn't doing the voice <laughs> but I also feel like when you've played a character for so long that you permanently damaged your own voice, you get a pass there. He sounded like Worf to me, so it mm. didn't seem like like he was more relaxed, but that was true to the character because the character yeah, that he was yeah. playing was also more relaxed, more comfortable, again, in his skin. Mm. And I loved... He got most of the funny lines. Yes. But was also the straight man, and it was just, it was amazing. <laughs> it was just a, a wonderful performance and a wonderful character. And I am a, now a war fan. <laughs> so, like, good job. To me, the key thing for Wolf <laughs> is that he is a neurotic Jewish guy who thinks he wants to be a Klingon. And it kind of feels like by now he has accepted who he is. And yes. That's why he's such a good foil for Rafi and why he is such a great character in this season. I loved him. I love him. Data and Picard. Mm. They're in the middle. They're my middle Mm. ground Mm. where they had great parts and then other parts where I was like, nope. (laughs) Nope, nope. I mean, Data in particular, we know that I have a a fraught relationship with Brent Spiner. One-sided, fraught relationship <laughs> yes. with Brent Spiner. <laughs> Fingers crossed he doesn't know we exist. With Brent Spiner's acting, I guess, is, is the, the actual relationship mm. I have. But, I mean, I loved his scenes with Jordy mm. pretty much universally. All of them were great. I liked his lore versus data scene a lot mm. because you could really see them as different characters but also like not the same characters that they were way back when yeah and i liked most of the stuff toward the end is where he starts you know moving into brent spinerdom and i was sort of over it and i hated hardcore hated the therapy scene which brent spiner came up with of course he did which just makes me hate it more. I can blame most of the stuff I didn't like with Data on the fact that I have a low tolerance for some of what mm. is 
spinerness and datedness. Hard. Oh, Jean-Luc. I you know throughout the whole series. Yeah. I really enjoy the series as the uh, deconstruction of the great man. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is true throughout. But I never like his his building back up as much. Yeah. He, he, he doesn't seem to earn it in the way that I want him to. He sort of says, oh, oh, I'm not great. And then immediately the next day, the entire universe mm. <laughs> aligns to remind him, no, actually you are. This has been the problem with the series all along. It's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And so we have the very good deconstruction of the great man theory and the Starfleet hero and all of that. But at the same time, every season has to end with Picard saving the universe. And this is a complaint that you hear a lot about Michael Burnham, that everything is about her and she's always having to save the galaxy. And in Picard's case, it's actually true. And it's not good. In uh, one of my photo caps, I did a a family can be meme Mm. with the TNG crew and it ends with Picard and the caption is, and you, the main character in absolutely everyone's life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I push against (laughs) that other people exist. (laughs) Other people have their own lives Mm. and everything that they do doesn't have to actually relate to Picard. (laughs) It would be okay. Right, and I feel like Geordie tried to make that point, but very quickly had to rejoin the Picard cult. <laughs> Poor Geordie. <laughs> he really did try hard. I loved how Geordie was introduced, and then by the end his daughters have just been assimilated and he's talking about his pet project, Rebuilding the Enterprise. And I'm like, this is so tasteless. It's so disrespectful to him as a father. <laughs> This script doesn't... Liz, you're skipping ahead. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's down under the series-long episode nine problem. (laughs) (laughs) But we will get there. I just think that Geordie and his family deserve better writing. So does Deanna Troy, because I feel like the writing for Deanna this season is the worst it's been since early TNG. Oh, what I wrote here is Deanna deserves an apology. Mm Mm-hmm. It is painful. Yeah. She was so good in season one of Picard. Mm. And here, you know, first we get a bunch of scenes where she's basically off screen nagging wife. Yeah. For no reason that I can understand. The characterization of their relationship in those scenes is nonsensical to me. I do not believe that Will Walker <laughs> would leave his wife and newborn to go to Earth to have whiskey with Picard. seriously (laughs) that would never happen but again it had to happen because (laughs) Picard is the main character in his life Mm. and so he had to set up something that was going to happen 25 years later anyway (laughs) also Riker would not miss the birth to begin with Deanna would never not have a Danny Mm. and she wouldn't be complaining. It, ugh, ugh. Uh, anyway, so then we have Deanna breaking into Will's mind to fix him mm. surreptitiously. Mm. Not great. <laughs> it, it was an interesting 
choice and it was an interesting way to break them up and resolve them, bring them back together. But the way that it was all written, mm. it, she came off as the manipulative wife. Yeah, they've already kind of bordered on the misogynistic trope of the woman who gets pregnant and steals the baby from the dad. And then we have Deanna is stealing Will's grief. It's like, yeah, the writing of women in general in this season is very poor, but particularly for Deanna, who is unethical and lazy as a psychologist. She's just bad at her job. And it yeah. really upsets <laughs> me. Right. And she can make mistakes in her personal life with mm -hmm. her husband in terms of therapy because she shouldn't be doing therapy with him anymore. Right, right. But then <laughs> she volunteers mm -hmm. to be Jack's therapist or, you know, evaluator, mm -hmm. therapeutic evaluator. And like, completely no so many things you don't do as a therapist are in that scene and then we get the horrible data scene where she's just completely not even listening to him it made me think of the scenes in voyager where reg barkley uh stalks her on her vacation and even then she's angry and she sets the boundary but she puts it aside to help her patient right and this here is literally the opposite, where she's looking for... And it was out of character for Data. This felt like the EMH, yes. not Data. Right, I agree. And, I mean, I hate that scene. <laughs> I, I would prefer to just... That's, that scene doesn't exist in my universe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if Data is, like, showing up for an hour and a half long therapy session every day for six months or whatever, like, you know, pass him on to someone else. There are things you can do that are not completely ignore him and then like join your husband in making fun of him. Right, right. <laughs> Everything about that is super unprofessional and I hate it. You know what that scene could have been? An Issa Briones cameo where we see Data and Soji having a conversation. Yeah, and uh, like there's scuttlebutt that that's what they wanted to do. Oh. But <laughs> that's not what they did. They chose this instead. Interesting. <laughs> they chose poorly. They chose poorly. Mm. All so, right, so let's talk about our returning guests. When I saw on Reddit that Ro Laren was back, I said something like, oh, Annika, you're going to be so excited. And then I saw that she was killed off, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, it was well done. Mm. That episode was very well done. That was Picard at his best. Yeah, yeah. In that entire episode, pretty much. Ro herself and then the circumstances surrounding Ro forcing Picard <laughs> to realize that, that there is a lot of collateral damage around being near Jean-Luc Picard, being in his orbit, which again, it is also Beverly's whole thing. And it was exactly the episode I wanted it to be up to the part where she died, but at least she died in a good way. Like, at least her sacrifice actually meant something. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to other sacrifices that have not meant things. 
or like you know rios leaving yeah (laughs) yeah that was meaningless and stupid but Mm. roe made an impact in the present and future and her legacy is protected in that way it made me think you know obviously i'm opposed to blowing up female characters that i like but the execution of roe's death was so much better than cats Exactly. Then Katrina Cornwells. It yeah. made sense for the character too. Yes. It's, it is absolutely something Roe would do. Mm-hmm. So I I I well, I mean I, I honestly loved that episode. And the performances were amazing. Mm-hmm. The chemistry was amazing. Even when the writing was clunky, they sold it because of how they did it. And I also, I mean, it, it's the scene that has my, my <laughs> Picard meets Beverly and Jack in the hallway. He's like, I might be going to prison, but we can be a family now, right? And they're both <laughs> looking at him like, what is wrong with you? How can you not realize that we are still in danger? <laughs> and then Beverly's like, I'm going to go uh, do an autopsy on the changeling. Okay, can you give me permission for that? And he's like, absolutely. It's like, you have no, like, you're not in charge of this ship in any way, and you're going to prison. You're going to be arrested in, like, half an hour. But he gives her permission, and she goes off to say, like, that's meaningful. And the entire time, Jack is just staring at the two of them, like, I want to be anywhere else. I understand everything now. That scene is gold, and it's surrounded by the Rose story and so I really love that episode. It was also a highlight of the season for me. Jack's face, like I wonder if it's too late to be adopted by Ben Sisko. Perfect. It's so good. And then we have Elizabeth Shelby and I'm like okay Picard still has very complicated feelings and a lot of rage about Roe. It doesn't really reflect well on him but I guess. And then it seems like Riker has also been carrying feelings of animus towards Shelby for 30 years. And it's like, guys. Which is. <laughs> it, it doesn't yes. reflect well on either of these men that they're still angry at women who inconvenienced them 30 years earlier. Right. Who dared to not want to be in their orbit, mm. who wanted to have their own lives and to have you know, to be the main character of their own life instead Mm -hmm. of the supporting character in theirs. Yeah. The second Shelby turned up, like, again, this is something that I was spoiled for in real time. I knew she was going to die because that's what happens to older women in this series. And I know that Terry Metalis said on Twitter, oh, maybe she's not dead. Oh, we almost shot a scene where Ro was alive. But I just feel like that's a showrunner who noticed the backlash about all the fridgings he was doing and decided to cover his ass, basically. The whole fleet formation concept was... Again, you're jumping ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. (laughs) But I want it to all be... You know, I want it to... I want to make my point, so we need to, like, have that all in the same spot. Okay, okay. Suffice to so say... So we can talk about how much you hate Q. Oh my <laughs> god. I saw a Tumblr post 
something along the lines of John Delancey turns up in the quarters of some 32nd century Picard on Discovery and that ends it as just like, yeah, this is just something that happens to my family. I'm sorry. We can't help it. <laughs> I just... That would be great. I know. I, would I know. love that, that, actually. That actually made me feel better about the whole thing. Because right? otherwise, I realise that Q's are not linear, and this is obviously Q before his touching and powerful death in season two. But also, why? Why are we doing this? Can I just say, it was very Q squared. Yes. Actually, the other thing that made me feel better about it was how Q squared it was. It was super Q squared. Reading that book really made me feel better about this season. Yeah. Aww. Thank I'm you, glad we did it then. Yes. It wasn't the scene I wanted. Mm. I wanted Elnor. Yeah. There, yeah. Was, there was a rumor that it was going to be Elnor, which made me happy. Jack walks into his quarters as a new ensign he has to share. His roommate exactly. is incredibly perky Romulan. The end. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect yeah. ending. Mm. But, I mean, I, I might be entirely the fact that Q was dressed so well. Mm. sartorially i was like oh i am super into this this okay. is exactly what i want out of q so i mean that's a ridiculous reason but it, no, it no. honestly made me like it more he has a sort of red capelet thing happening and it looked like yeah. president rillick on discovery and i was, was... like oh there's a team up i never thought of <laughs> they can go shopping together <laughs> okay, we're just making amazing connections that <laughs> now I want. Honestly, I I blame our discussion and our reading Q squared where that that's why I was okay with it. No, but it still no. should have been Elnor. <clears throat> it just felt cheap, and part of my thing right now is that not every media property has to be like the MCU, and I feel like Star Trek is trying very hard to MCUify itself whether through the little pre-credit, pre-teaser animation or mm. the mid-credit sequence in the finale. I just think, you know, let Star Trek be Star Trek. Although I did like in that pre-teaser animation that the ship changed. So, you know, in some weeks you could see the Shrike, then the Titan became the Enterprise D when they got the Enterprise mm -hmm. D. That was a nice mm -hmm. touch and I liked it. But overall... You know. All right. The next, next generation. The next, next generation. <laughs> Do you have some feelings about Jack Crusher? I have so many feelings about <laughs> Jack Crusher. They overtake me. Mm -hmm. I, I am, I am completely incapable of being normal about Jack Crusher, and it was literally from jump. Yeah. I got to see the first episode a few days early in New York and immediate. I changed the the spoiler warning on our Discord just so I could say, I regret to inform you, <laughs> I already love Beverly's son. Like this, this is the amazing thing is that Jack Crusher, not counting his... <laughs> voice in the in the first few seconds of the mm -hmm. episode is introduced posing with a phaser protecting his mother yeah which as we know 
is why I love Beverly Crusher. Yes. And so I was like, oh no, <laughs> this character was literally made for me. Mm. Every single week, everything he did was another layer of this character was literally made specifically for me. Every original character I have ever made in my life has the same character traits and beats and quirks and plots mm. <laughs> that happen to Jack Crusher. I Again, I, I don't have the words to explain how perfect he is for me personally. Mm. And he's my favorite Star Trek character. <laughs> like... The only rival is Seven of Nine, and the Jack and Seven show is my favorite part of Picard, <laughs> so it all works out. I really enjoyed Jack because he is 100% a Gary Stew, but okay. I'm okay with that. Like, we've had Michael and Soji as, like, archetypical Mary Sue, Spock's sister, Data's daughter. I feel like with Jack, the wish fulfillment sort of masculine wish fulfillment element is really powerful but also mm -hmm. he's much more interesting than that because he yes. is not a terribly masculine character this is a guy who cries easily he cries when it's too easy to kill changelings and that scares him and he wants to present as a pirate and he wants to be Han Solo but he also lives with his mum he has so many contradictions and layers, and I really, really enjoy that. So the only thing I have, the only thing I oppose to everything you just said is that I don't like the term Gary Stu. Mm. I would prefer to call him a Mary Sue. Cool. I don't think that there is a need to gender the concept <laughs> of a Mary Sue. I think we can just use Mary Sue for all of them. I think it's actually a little bit sexist <laughs> to say that there needs to be a different name for men who mm. are this kind of wish fulfillment original character. I can see that, but I also think that the male wish fulfillment character fills different needs to the female. However, I feel like this could be an entire podcast episode of its own. <laughs> so let's put this on the back burner for some time and just agree okay. that there is an element of wish fulfillment and Mary Suosity in Jack Crusher. And that's great. Yeah, I think it's great, too. I have never been against Mary Sue's. Mm. I don't actually... I, that's another thing where if I call someone a Mary Sue, is usually a compliment. If I call someone a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, it's usually a compliment. Mm. I, <laughs> I just have um, one complaint about how Jack's story ends with this season, and that's that he should be in green shoulders, not red. Because he is taking the position of counsellor to the captain, which was originally sort of a Deanna Troy thing, and his mm -hmm. background is in... Is medical. I was going to say medical piracy, but... <laughs> medical piracy! I love medical piracy. <laughs> I want to be in medical piracy. How do I get into it? Let's get back to that. Let's talk about Sydney and Alandra. My daughters. Aww. My sisters. I love them. They're so precious. I mean, Sydney is definitely more of a person. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think, I think she's great. And I really enjoyed seeing them interact as sisters and doing things that aren't revolving around their father. Exactly. Alondra, Mika and Alondra were more of a person and more of an actress when they were separate from yes. Jordy. Yes. But, I mean, Sydney, 
I really enjoyed her initial interactions with Seven mm. and you know she was sort of always there like even her introduction was super cute with Picard and Riker and and then she was always around and she's like her her role grew as the season grew and mm. she became you learn more things about her and it became more fun it was a really well done arc for you know a, a secondary character i agree that so when we get to bounty and she has her big scene with her dad and is like look you taught me to be this person and now i'm gonna go do it that was very powerful i love bounty and we're already on her side by that point because we already yes. know her yeah no, I think Sydney is almost a masterclass in how to introduce a legacy character without, yes. without having her take over the show and without having her only be about her relationship with her father, her parents. Right. If Star Trek Nepo Babies becomes a thing, then I hope we get to see more of Sydney. I also enjoy having a hotshot pilot who isn't the wise-cracking, edgy type. Like, I think, mm -hmm. I think we've had so many goes at the Han Solo type in Star Trek, from Tom Paris to Kayla Detmer to what's-her-face in Ortegas, that's her name. And it's cool to have a pilot who is equally brave and equally competent and not at all about that wisecracking life. She's sincere. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I really love it. <clears throat> Sincerity is such a valuable trait, especially, again, with the MCUification of media and the tendency for everyone to try and write like Joss Whedon. Right, right. No quips yeah. needed. Yeah. I want truth, genuine... Yes. Yeah. It makes sense for Jack as a character who is very avoidant and cagey to hide behind quips it doesn't make sense for everyone. Yeah, and so in in the elevator scene, mm -hmm. excuse me, the turbo lift scene between Jack and Sydney when he can hear her thoughts. Mm. I mean, that's it's another one that I just love. It's just so wonderful for me because we have Jack trying really hard to be that, you know, cocky archetype mm -hmm. that he really wants to present to the world mm -hmm. and being completely incapable of actually <laughs> selling it because wait did Beverly didn't teach him how to flirt like, <laughs> yeah, it's very clear to me that Jack has no friends pre-series I'm sure he had a lot of superficial relationships mm. but no actual friends He's a homeschooled kid whose socialization comes from his mum, the people he meets in passing along the way, the books he's read and the dramas he's watched, and exactly. his exposure to Picard's logs and Picard's history. And Picard, too, was a quippy fuckboy in his youth, and, and Jack is trying really, really hard. He's trying so hard and he's so bad at it. And I love that for yes. him. <laughs> and I love that he like hears and he's like, okay, I guess I'll try to do that. <laughs> Even though, <laughs> like my first thought would be, why can I hear her thoughts? And he tries and she's like weirded out and he's 
kind of also weirded out in this like did any of that really even happen like he's losing his mind mm-hmm. also really trying to make a connection it's a great setup for what i would love to be their ongoing will they want their relationship i'm just saying his parents also had a telepathy thing at one point <laughs> i put that in the photograph <laughs> thank you they absolutely did and i personally think it was an homage because what happens to Jack and Sydney in that episode mm-hmm. happens to Jean-Luc and Beverly in Attached. Yep. More than one thing happens to them. So I love beautiful. This. I love again this. Terry Metalis is near Annika. <laughs> he so is. Uh, and then we have the kids who are missing, Soji and Elnor, the legacies who aren't the products of conventional heterosexual intercourse Mm -hmm. and Kestra who is inconveniently a child and um, inconveniently a child a mention I mean they 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 say her name like twice I think Mm. but in the final episode I would have liked a Kestra mention because otherwise it feels like Will and Tiana are just like we've gone back to our lives and we just forgot we had a daughter like no one cares Terry Metalis has the Michael Shabon problem of putting extraneous information on social media instead of in the script. And apparently Kestra is off at the Academy, which she's too young, but also I think that means she got assimilated. We need to talk about, we don't need to, but I'm going to talk about the, you just said she's too young. Mm -hmm. How many years do you think happens between season one and season three? What it says online is like one. (laughs) No, there's like 18 months between season one and two. This is supposed to be like 2401. And the first first season was supposed to be 2399. That doesn't work for me. I would like to point your attention to Rappy's granddaughter, who was unborn mm. in season one, and now is generously four. You know, I think it's really sad <laughs> that Ruffy's son and his family were caught in that time loop that time. Really, <laughs> really makes Christmas difficult. So, but if Kestra, who was like 11... Mm-hmm. <laughs> in season one is at the academy mm-hmm. so like again generously let's say she was a child prodigy and so she got in when she was 16 mm-hmm. that's still five years mm-hmm. let's say that by the academy talus means they packed her off to a pre-academy boarding school still not a great reflection on them as parents but it's absolutely something that loxana troy would have done to diana that's true. That's true. I like, I think, yeah, okay. yeah. Maybe Kestra wanted to go to a pre-academy boarding school. It's not what I got out of her from season one, but apparently Will and Deanna hated Nepenthe, <laughs> so yeah. who knows? They were all like a pod family in season one, I guess. Yes. But also, you know the flashback that's five years ago with... Jack in the bar. Yes. I don't see how that scene happens until season one has already happened. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that Picard would even be in that bar. Season one Picard was basically a recluse. Exactly. And Starfleet was down on Picard at that point. The ensign that, like, welcomes him to 
Starfleet Command in the mm. second episode of season one is sort of like, I know who you are, sir. But he, he's not like asking him for <laughs> any fun stories about his time. So like that five years ago scene in my mind has to happen in between season one and season two. So what I'm hearing is that somewhere off screen, and I assume it's going to involve Janeway, the entire Federation was caught in a brief time loop. Okay. So five years passed, <laughs> but only two calendar years. Okay. Yeah. Blaming Janeway sounds like a good plan. Right, right. Also, <laughs> as we are still in 2020, this makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> good point. But anyway, yeah. I don't actually care about all of the continuity <laughs> issues. I'm just, you know, mm. just saying. Mm. It stretches mm. a little credulity on my part. No, <laughs> I generally make it a practice not to think too closely about timelines, and I'm going to try and get back to that as quickly as possible. <laughs> Good plan. It really, really bugged me that we have this whole thing where Alton Sung gets more screen time and mentions than Soji, the lead female character of season one. Yeah. Again, because I was watching them all and I made a vid and my my personal way that I make vids is to find parallels and then point them out. Mm. And Soji and Jack are kind of the same. Oh yeah. So yeah. and I really I was like I really want them to talk. So yeah. I would like I would like talking to happen between these two characters because I think they have a lot in common. It would be great. Mm. But again, they screwed up Soji in episode one of season two, mm -hmm. or in my opinion, episode nine of season one. I was about to suggest that, yes. That was so, yeah. Justice for Soji and the fact that no one even mentioned her. Mm. Even the stupid Alton Sung, like, I, I made a an android that is part data and part lore and part B4 and part lol. And I will say, they said part lol once in that first, in mm -hmm. his recording, and then never mentioned lol again. <laughs> so, this is not a show that cares about daughters. It was just bad. That was bad. That really felt like... They decided to add lol into that scene in like mm. post. Mm. <laughs> it was it was ADR on uh Brent Spiner's part. But the fact that they mentioned lol and not Soji or when any of the other Capalia androids. Yeah, Alton Sung, like you live with them. Mm. You live with them. You create all them. of those like what are you talking about? Why mm. did they not matter? I mean, I hate that planet, but why did they not matter? Right. Right. There is a season two in my head that deals with the androids of Coppelius and Soji and the XBs and yes. alongside all of that, Picard's grief about his childhood and Rafi and Rios choosing to join Starfleet and Agnes being able to go her own way. All of that could have been done without any mm -hmm. of the nonsense that made season two so terrible. Without any time travel yeah. without Q shenanigans yeah. without random Guinan. Mm. You could have like good Guinan. Oh yeah. Look, I have <laughs> nothing against Guinan in any timeline. Or played by I mean, actors, remember but... remember how there was an entire episode about there was an entire episode about one random FBI guy's childhood trauma. I had forgotten. <laughs> like Christ. I like that it was included in the theme mm. 
But why why were we supposed to care about that guy? Well, he's a white guy. They, it, it, no. No, I know. Just, just none of that was necessary. No. I would absolutely love season two to happen on Capelius and be about like that <laughs> the the build-up of season one yeah because i think the federation of picard of star trek picard is so small-minded and militaristic and bigoted mm-hmm. they're bigoted mm-hmm. against androids they're bigoted against xbs romulans and romulans it's a really ugly place there's no indication that that they fixed that by season three right and so that's a really interesting foundation for Star Trek Nepo babies. But do they know that this is what they've created? Because I'm absolutely actually... not. No, no, <laughs> we absolutely do not. But I would love that show. Oh, absolutely! I think we've let the Federation go off course, and now we have to fix it. And this is not a problem caused by outsiders. There's no mind control. There's no evil admirals possessed by bugs. It's just us. That is so timely. And honestly, having Captain Seven Mm. as captain of the flagship, Mm. it's like they say, oh, racism is a problem. And so we're going to form a committee to discuss how racism is a problem (laughs) instead of addressing Mm. any of the racism in our Mm. corporation or in our community or in our country. And... It feels like that, and I feel like that's a great setup. As yes. like we we've put all of our problem children mm-hmm. <laughs> into the forefront and said, "Look, look, everything's fixed because we made seven of nine captain of the Enterprise." Mm. Look how diverse our brochures are, and to, to then prove that that's not true and that it's actually the action of those people who are now in that position that actually make the change happen. Like mm. that would be a great mm. story. And the other thing is, I think since Voyager, any encounter with the Borg that doesn't involve liberating drones is basically a moral failure. And I mean, frankly, since Hugh. Well, yes, but Seven proved that it could be done yes. again. Like Seven was the proof that it, Hugh wasn't a, 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 yes. a fluke. And so the only... And to be fair, mm-hmm. in Voyager, that's what happens. This is true. Every time they come across more Borg in Voyager, I mean, like, Tess was nice enough to push them past all the bad ones, mm. but they come across random little pockets of Borg three or four times in Voyager, and they always save them. Yeah, yeah. Even, I can't remember which episode it is, but the one where Seven's cortical node is going haywire, and Janeway's like, I'm going to get a live Borg, and I'm going to steal their cortical node, and I'm going to leave them to die. That is not an acceptable solution. And she finds right. another way. I think Echeb donates his cortical node, which is why Bejazel doesn't find it. And... It's imperfection. Thank it's you. like season, the seventh season. Yeah, yeah. Me uh, too. Yeah. The only people who I forgive for not trying to rescue the Borg are the prodigy kids because they're children and they have no resources. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Brad Boimler is the only person who gets it. <laughs> Brad Boimler, my beloved! <laughs> Look, if you're nice to the Borg, you're automatically my friend. <laughs> so, speaking of people who are mean to the Borg. Yes. Oh, let's move Captain on to Captain Shaw. Shaw. Liz here. Uh, we recorded a day late 
and then talked for two full hours. So rather than attempt to edit uh, an immense podcast episode in one single day, I've roughly not quite chopped it in half and the next half of our conversation will be out next week. Thank you for your patience and I'm sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger. I'm not really sorry.